All right, a formal welcome to, to Kabbalah and Coffee. As always, Kabbalah and Coffee, this series is sponsored by Ed Zinn in loving memory of his mom, Arden. All right, we begin with a conversation about one of the, one of the biggest theological questions. I don't know if it's theological or philosophical, but it really combines both. One of the big questions that people ask. And the question that I'm referring to, which I wrote about in the email on Friday, which you may have received, is why do bad things happen to good people? It's a question that people ask, whether they ask it in a philosophical way or more of a, a personal way or emotional way. Um, it could be a person who has uh, been through challenges or is going through challenges or somebody whose loved one or a family member or friend is going through challenges. And a person might ask, quite justifiably, this person is good or I'm a good person. Why are these bad things happening to me or to my, my beloved, my loved one? A, a justified question, a question that comes from a real place and a deep place. Let me add on to the question. The question of why do bad things happen to good people or maybe more precisely or from a more spiritual um, point of view is why would God or how could God allow suffering to happen to this person, to a good person or to good people? It's that question, the premise is based on three axioms that we believe about God. If you take away any one of these starting points, if you will, the question doesn't exist. In other words, the question, why does God allow good people to suffer? Why does God bring misfortune upon those that are righteous? That question is based on three starting points vis-a-vis -vis our understanding of God. Number one, that God is all-knowing. Number two, that God is all-powerful. And number three, that God is good. So it's based on these three premises that we ask the question, how could God or why does God allow, I guess how would be the stronger question, how could God allow this to happen? If God is all-knowing, so it's not like this is happening outside of his knowledge, and if God is all-powerful, which means that God could correct this problem or this, this sorrow, this mis misfortune. And three, if God is good, in other words, God is good in the way we understand good and is loving and is kind and is generous. So then how could a loving God who knows all and who has every ability in the world to make good things happen and to prevent the opposite, so why does God allow for good people to suffer, how could that be? Today, we're not going to answer this question, and I apologize if uh, there's some sort of philosophical error in asking a question that you're not going to answer, but it is what it is. I apologize in advance, but that's not the question we're talking about. We're talking about today the flip side, the polar opposite of that question, which, by the way, the question that I did ask, we've addressed in many different contexts, in many different classes that I've taught that many of you have been at, including courses on the Holocaust, including um, courses on happiness, 
and how to maintain a positive disposition even amidst um, personal challenge. So we've discussed this topic of why bad things happen to good people. We've discussed this in many different contexts. So I, I just, I'm just saying that to let you know that I'm not exactly leaving you high and dry. Reference other classes, and if you need a link to a class and an audio recording or maybe even video, let me know. I'm happy to share that. But the, the question we're going to address today is the opposite, the other side of the coin. This is a question that I've rarely discussed, very rarely. In fact, I can't remember the last time we discussed this specific question. The question that's on the table for today, this Sunday, April 11th, 2021, is not why do good people suffer, but it's why do the wicked seem to prosper? Why is it that evil seems to be successful? Why is it that evil ink, if that were to be a thing, right? Why is it that evil ink consistently seems to be making a profit and working out very well for those that are involved in the syndicate. Why does evil seem to prosper? And the truth is, I'm using the word seem to soften the question, but listen, it's Sunday morning. We're starting the week off with Kabbalah. We're starting the week off with, with some intense mystical study. So let's just take the word seem out. So the question on the table today is, why, do evil, why does evil prosper? Why do those who perpetrate evil so often prosper? Now, not always, right? But enough to evoke the question, why is it that bad things and bad people seem to be rewarded? Shouldn't there be some, something built into the mechanism of creation where if you go over a certain line, you're automatically cut off. Are you with me on my question? Yes? Wouldn't that be nice, by the way? Wouldn't that be amazing? That if, you, if somebody or somebody's went too far, whatever, wherever that line was, that it just, it just would, the system itself would shut it down? That would be amazing. But it doesn't seem to happen. And you and I can conjure up, can think about scenarios in which, wow, wouldn't that have been amazing had the energy flow to that person or those people have been shut down before things got to where they got to, right? I'm sure I don't need to mention any specifics because we all have minds that can think of scenarios. So the question is, why is it that all too often, in our reality, in this world that we inhabit, why is it that evil prospers? This is a question that's a big question. It's a question that is based on the same three axioms, the same three foundational beliefs that I cited before with the other side of the coin question. All right? This is my question, today's question, is based on our belief that God is all-knowing, that God is all-powerful, and that God is good. So if we have a good God who knows all and can do all, so how is it that evil is successful? How is it that there's energy flowing to evil? How does it not get yanked out of the system? How does that happen? 
Okay, so that's the question. So in our journey to answer this question, we are going to touch on so many incredible Kabbalistic concepts, including, but not limited to, a conversation about the four worlds, a conversation about the 10 Sefirot energies, a conversation about the specific dimension and energy of Malchut, a conversation of divine light versus divine source of light, a conversation about yearning versus satisfaction. We are going to be talking about so many fundamental, foundational Kabbalistic ideas in order to address this really big question. How is it that evil all too often prospers? We're going to get into a lot of, not basic, a lot of fundamental, not basic at all, it's very complex, but a lot of really, really important mystical concepts that will be hopefully presented, this is my job, to present them in a way that makes a lot of sense and that resonates with us in our own lives and in our own experiences. But, it's not a but, along with this, this is going to be a long conversation. In our books, Overcoming Folly, which I don't believe is yet back in print. Has anybody checked lately to see if it's back in print? It was out of print from the publisher. Anyway, you don't have to answer. You can Google it on another tab while I'm, uh, while I'm teaching over here. So in our book, Overcoming Folly, this question and conversation takes up multiple pages, many pages. Um, it also takes up uh, many chapters and even runs among, uh, along a few discourses. It's divided into a number of discourses within each our chapters in this text. So the point is, we're not going to answer, my point is, we're not going to answer this question today. So if you think you're going to get a quick and easy answer why evil prospers, the answer is not going to come today. But the foundation is going to start being built today. And we're going to get into some major ideas. My goal is that in each session, I, don't, I can't tell you exactly how many sessions, how many Sundays it will take to cover this topic. But I will say that each Sunday that we address this topic, there will be the overall topic that we're addressing. And we're building toward a, an understanding and some sort of resolution in, in comprehension. But even as that builds out, the goal will be that each Sunday we walk away with something that immediately can be applicable to our lives and resonates. This is less theoretical Kabbalah and more practical Kabbalah, as is, of course, the mission, the guiding mission of this text, Overcoming Folly, which I probably should reset for a quick moment. This text, Overcoming Folly, is all about counteracting those thoughts in our mind that, that allow us to engage in behavior that otherwise we know we shouldn't. So whenever a person takes a course of action that is unhealthy, whether spiritually or physically, whatever, or both, so when a person steps into that negative behavior, typically, typically, there was a thought process in the head where there was a voice that said, are you sure about this? And another voice that said, don't worry, it's okay because of X, Y, and Z. So this text is trying to overcome those 
folly, those foolish thoughts that convince us that what we're doing is fine. So here's where we are in our discourse, in, in this larger text. We're up to discourse number five. And we're going to address the folly, the inner folly, the inner dialogue that states the following. It's okay to do what I'm about to do. Not only will I be okay, even though I'm going to do this, I'll actually be better off. The, the first part of that we addressed over the last several sessions. But the new twist is the new material that we're starting this week. The old material is, I'll do this. Oh, the, the book is still out of stock, but on Amazon, one second. Oh. Amazon, it's available for about th uh, close to 40 bucks, but it can sometimes go over 400. So Sandrine is writing in the chat. Yeah, I've been noticing that the, well, I've noticed before that the resellers are, the prices has, gone, has gotten really high in these books, but Sandrine is saying that she found a copy that's a little bit more modestly priced. Okay. All right. Either way, I shared the text so you can see it on the screen and you can always download it from HebrewBooks.org, which is perfectly um, thumbs up. It's, it's approved by the publisher. Either way. But getting back to the point. So in previous sessions, we addressed the folly or the, the Ruach Shtus, the the spirit of folly that convinces a person, don't worry, it's okay, you can do it, you'll be fine. You'll be okay, there won't be such a big fallout, you'll be okay. Even though you're going to do something that goes against your very core, value, core values, your identity, your spiritual purpose, don't worry, you'll be fine. So that's the, the folly that we addressed in the previous several sections by saying essentially... You'll be fine. What do you mean? You're compromising your values. You're, you're, you're unplugging from who you are and from your source. And so realize that this is a big deal. It's not such a small deal. That was, that's what we've already done. Today we're going to address an even deeper folly, which is not just, oh, you know what? Let me do it. I'll be fine. Or go ahead and do it. I'll be fine. That inner voice that says everything will be okay. But more, it's more than that. It's, you know what? I'm going to let me do it. Let me go ahead and do it more than being okay. I'm going to be better off by doing this. Why? Because nice guys finish last. And by doing this, that's not so I'm using a, a loose term here. Not so kosher, right? It's actually going to benefit me. Are you with me in how more serious this, this folly is? This is not just saying, I know it's wrong, I'm going to do it anyway, and hopefully it'll be okay. This is saying, I'm going to do it, and by doing this, it's actually going to benefit me. It's actually going to be better for me than if I did doing the wrong thing, than if I did the right thing. And the premise, the premise in our discourse is that there's some truth to this. That's the crazy thing, that there is some truth to the notion that evil sometimes, maybe even oftentimes, prospers. And thus, I've connected 
the two intros that I've shared with you this morning. The idea of evil prospering and overcoming folly, which is our text. The notion that evil prospers is the next folly that we need to overcome. In other words, the thought process that can lead a person down a negative path, one of these thought processes might be, let me go down this negative path, because honestly it seems that folks that go down these negative paths seem to be doing very well. And now I promise the practical application, let me give you like the most, the lowest hanging fruit of application. Give you the absolute easiest application ever. You're offered a business deal that is, how shall we say, not so kosher, right? It's not so on the up and up. You're approached, there's an opportunity, whether it's from outside or whether you've, you've thought about it yourself, it doesn't matter. There's an opportunity in front of you to make a lot of money by cutting a lot of corners. And when I say cutting a lot of corners, I mean by, act, by taking actions that are, and again, I'm using a, you know, a Jewish term, that are not kosher. Doing things that are not kosher in order to make some money. And now you have a question. Now you have a question. Should I go ahead with this opportunity and profit? Or... Should I desist and say I'm not doing it because it goes against my values? That's the question that the person is facing at this juncture. Yeah, so the thought process in the head is, yeah, I could not take this opportunity. I could be the good guy. I could be the goody two-shoes. I could be the rule follower and consistently, once again, I'll be left behind and everyone else will be successful. Because life rewards those that are willing to break the rules. Again, I'm not stating this as a fact. I'm stating this as a thought process in the head. A person is in their own head is thinking, should I, shouldn't I do this thing that's not so kosher? And the thought process, the inner, the inner thought or rationalization that's going around, that's circulating in the mind, saying, go, pushing a person off that ledge is saying, not only will you be okay, right? One voice is, don't worry, you won't get caught. Or don't worry, even if you do, it'll still be okay. This voice is much, much more, it's much further than that. This voice, this inner voice says, don't worry, go ahead with it. It's going to benefit you. You'll be better off by cutting the corners. By doing the not-so-kosher thing, you'll be better off. Yeah. <laughs> Tony writes, sounds like the start of every good crime drama or heist movie. Exactly. Exactly. Right? It's, come on. What, are you afraid? This is, this is the ticket to wealth. This is the ticket to... Success, the ticket to prosperity, the ticket to getting ahead. That's the next stage in the folly. 
The book is called Overcoming Folly. We need a really strong counteraction to this mindset, this rationalization. But before we get to how to overcome it, let's establish what it is. This is not saying, I hope no one finds out. This is not saying, nah, no one will find out. This is not saying, even if people find out, I'll be able to somehow, you know, uh, say sorry and get past it. This is saying, this negative action is going to benefit me. So yeah, I'm going to do it. It's going to be good for me. And as I said at the opening of today's class, this has a foundation in our reality and even in the spiritual reality, which we're about to explore. The idea that evil prospers, it seems to be a fact born of experience. People that cut corners, that lie, cheat, and steal. Yeah, some of them get caught, but a lot of people that cut a lot of corners have made a lot of money and have otherwise been successful. The question is, where does that come from? And ultimately, how do we counteract, if that, if that is true, how do we counteract that? How do we overcome that folly? Because that's a really strong one. That inner voice or that maybe somebody else is telling you, maybe it's an outer voice that says, go ahead. This will, be, this will pay off for you. Not only you'll be okay, this will be better for you. How do we counteract that voice? We're not going to get to the answer to the overcoming of this folly for another few weeks. Again, this is the long, there's no short answer here. But before we get to the answer or the, the response, the inner voice, the, the healthy response to that idea, to that suggestion, before we get to the response, we need to establish what are the spiritual dynamics that actually allow that that to happen? Like, what are the spiritual dy dynamics at play that actually allow people who cut corners, who lie, cheat, and steal to be successful? Like, how, how, does, how does that work in the, from the get-go? Like, how does that even work at all? So before we get to how to disregard that thought process, how is that reality a reality? Where does that come from? We're going to quote a verse from Deuteronomy, a verse that we quoted in a previous chapter. And it's from the final speech that Moses, the greatest Jewish leader who ever lived, that Moses gave to his people shortly before his passing. The whole book of Deuteronomy, Devarim, the fifth book of Torah, the five book, fifth of the five books of Moses, is pretty much, with, with a few verses here and there, pretty much is Moses speaking. It's like transcript of Moses speaking to the people for the last 37 days before his passing. And one of the things that Moses tells the people is be very careful, lest you tell yourself the following. I will be at peace. Life will be good. I will go in the ways of my heart's desires. I am not going to stress about right and wrong, rules and regulations, Torah and mitzvot. I'm not going to stress about that. I'm going to live a peaceful life. I'm going to live a good life. And I'm just going to go 
I am going to go with the whims of my heart. I'm going to follow my heart and do what I wish. And it's going to be good for me. This is the verse that we're going to base our analysis on. Why is it indeed that people who follow, I don't just mean follow their heart and, and, and you know, go vacation somewhere. I mean, follow their heart in the sense and break rules along the way, why that seems to lead to success. So at this point, I'm going to, just in a moment, I'm going to share my screen with you. As I said before, we're going to get into a lot of Kabbalah in this conversation. At any point in the Kabbalah, please stop me and, and, and ask for clarification if it gets a little bit complicated um, because the goal here is that we should all understand it very clearly. Okay. Let me pull up the text. Here we go. Okay, can you guys see page 78, Discourse 5, Chapter 1? Is that showing up? Yes. Awesome. All right, here we go. <clears throat> Next stage of folly. False assurances is the little header caption. Let's begin. The Yetzirah, that means the evil inclination. That's that inner voice that, we, that we've been speaking about. The Yetzirah assures man that even though he sins, he shall have peace. In other words, the inner voice says, even though you do X, Y, and Z, that's not so, uh, not so kosher, it'll be good. And again, not just good, it's going to be better. Be better than, than, than had you not. As is written... And this is the verse from Deuteronomy that I just mentioned above. He will bless himself in his heart. And by the way, there's a southern expression called bless your heart, which I don't think means exactly the same thing. But he will bless himself in his heart, saying, I shall have peace. Why will I have peace? For by what my heart sees fit, I will go. Right? So a person will bless himself in his heart, will justify their own actions and be content by saying, I'll be okay because I'm going to do whatever I want. This too, he says, back inside, is part of the enticement of the Yetzer. That honey drips from the lips of a harlot, but her end is bitter as worm word. This is from Proverbs. King Solomon is writing. And again, it's not about a specific example, but it's more about the, the concept. That temptation is very tempting. But the end is negative. So he says this is part of the enticement of the Yetzer. In other words, the evil inclination is trying to convince a person that it looks great, right? Honey drips from the lips of a harlot. But her end is bitter as wormwood, right? The, the sin at the beginning is like honey that's dripping. It's sweet. It's fantastic. But at the end... It's not good. It doesn't pay off at the end. But, again, that's, the, that's ideally, but practically, we encounter a different reality, which is, what we're going to, which is what we're going to address. So, this is 
this opening paragraph kind of states the folly and ultimately the resolution of the folly, but we haven't yet built it out. The folly is, there was the negative, the, the rationalization that allows a person to go ahead with a negative action says, I'll be okay. <clears throat> not just okay, I'll be better than okay if I do this. And the truth is, that's not the case. But along the way, it does seem that it is, for many people, sweet as honey, engaging in all sorts of negative behaviors. So let's jump in. Let us first understand, next paragraph, let us first understand, let me see if I can get, um, no, okay, let us first understand the earlier quotation, he will bless himself in his heart. Hold on. Oh, I found, I found my, my ability to highlight. Okay. There we go. Now I can highlight. Let us first understand the earlier quotation. He will bless himself in his heart saying, I shall have peace. For by what my heart sees fit, I will go. And thereby, oh, this is very critical here, this last part of the verse. And thereby, svot, we're not translating it yet, the sated with the thirsty. That's the full verse. Again, let's start again from the verse because if we miss this, it's not going to pack the same punch, this whole conversation. Again, the verse says in Deuteronomy, Moses is talking to the people and giving a scenario of a person that's going down a negative path and just doing whatever he or she wants. And Moses says that this person, he will bless himself in his heart, saying, I shall have peace, for by what my heart sees fit I will go, and thereby sephot the sated with the thirsty. What does that mean? We haven't yet explained. Let's jump back into the text. The verse seems to imply that by what my heart sees fit I will go is the reason for the earlier clause, he will bless himself in his heart. In other words, why shall I have peace? Because I will go by what my heart sees fit. In other words, it's not just I will have peace even though I'll do whatever I want. It'll still be okay. But no, 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 no. It will be okay, this person believes, precisely because I do whatever I want. You see the difference? One way is saying, I feel, one justification, rationalization in the head is, I feel that I will be okay even though I do whatever I want and break the rules. The deeper, more nefarious thought process is, I feel that I'll be okay precisely because I do whatever I want and break all the rules, which is today's conversation, right? Again, why shall I have peace? Because I go by what my heart sees fit. And he asked, this seems to be quite beyond understanding. How can anyone imagine that only if he follows the dictates of his heart, in other words, breaks all the rules, he shall have peace? Also, as we said, as we alluded to before, what is the meaning of the last part of the verse, sephot the sated with the thirsty, what does that word sephot mean, and what does it sated mean, and what does thirsty mean, and what in the world does that part of the verse mean at all, right? So again, we have two questions. Question number one, the verse does not say 
that the person's thought process is, I'm going to break the rules, hopefully I'll be okay. It's, I'm going to break the rules, and because of that, I'll be okay. How does that make sense? And number two, what does it mean that the, again, I'm, I'm highlighting the, the original verse over there, and thereby, and by going by what I, what I want to do and breaking all the rules, thereby I will sefot, the seder with the thirsty. What does sefot mean? It's a Hebrew word. What does sefot mean? What does sated and what does thirsty mean in this context? I mean, sated, we know what it means. Sated means you're satisfied. Thirsty means you're thirsty. But what does it mean in this context of doing what I want and breaking rules and still being successful? So again, the first question is, how could it be that a person believes that they'll do whatever they want and be successful precisely because of that? Well, because evil prospers. But that's his question. How, how could that be? And we're going to explain it. And then what does this vote sated and thirsty mean? Okay, um, let me check in and make sure that we're all on the same page. Stop sharing for a quick second. Does this make sense so far? Yes? Yes? All right, I'm getting enough nods and thumbs up, thank you, that I feel comfortable continuing. Again, if you have a question, jump right in and I'll clarify. But before we get to the Kabbalah, as you'll see now, he's going to explain what the word sfot means. It's a, it's a biblical word. It's literally in the, in the Torah. Laman, I'm going to share the Hebrew words. Laman, sfot, harava, et hatzmeah. In order to sfot, haven't translated that yet, the sated with the thirsty. What does sfot mean? And, okay, so now he's going to bring two commentaries. Rashi and, I believe, Radak. We'll see. I'll, I'll share the screen. That explain what sfot means. Here we go. Yes, Rashi and Radak. Sfot is stated with the thirsty. Here we go. Rashi, on the Talmud in Sanhedrin 76b, uses the word sefot in the sense of joining. As in the verse in Isaiah, you join one year to another in sin. The context over there is the context. Um, but the idea here is that sefot, according to Rashi, Rashi is uh, one of the primary Jewish commentaries on both the Torah as well as the Talmud. So he comments on pretty much all the books of Scripture, Tanakh, the Torah, Nevi'im, Ksuvim, the five books of Moses, the books of the prophets, the books of the writings, etc. There's Rashi on Psalms, there's Rashi on Isaiah, there's Rashi everywhere you go, Rashi has a commentary. So Rashi, and, and he also has a commentary on the Talmud, Rashi on the Talmud explains that Sfot means the idea of joining of combining or connecting with. It's connecting. Radak, on the other hand, it's another um, commentary that uh, uh, comments on, on Tanakh, on, on Scripture. Radak, I believe his name was Rabbi David, Rashi is Rabbi Shlomo Yitzchaki. Rabbi, Rashi is, the, the, the consonants are the R, the, the Sh, and the I. So Rabbi Shlomo Yitzchaki. So that was his name, Rabbi Shlomo ben Yitzchak. The Radak was Rabbi David, Rabbi David Kimchi. So the Radak interprets the word of Svot as signifying addition. As in, in Numbers, to augment yet. And in Jeremiah, add your burnt offerings to your peace sacrifices. So we have two different meanings or, or understandings of the meaning of the word svot. Either it means joining together, 
or it means almost augmenting or adding on or on some level surpassing the original. So it either means join or it means adding on to. We're building pieces here. This is not supposed to make sense yet. We're, we're building out the foundation. Let's continue. Hebrew side, let's go back to the English. Page 80. Now, that's with regard to the word svot. But what is sated and what is thirsty? Because remember, the, he, the original verse said, Moses says, that a person's going to justify their actions saying, I'll be okay, I'll be good, I'm good, precisely because I'm going to do whatever I want. In order to svot, the sated with the thirsty, svot either means connect or add on to, but what's sated and what's thirsty? Here we go. The words sated and thirsty are interpreted by Rashi in the same Talmudic tractate Sanhedrin as such. Sated refers to idolaters who are satiated and not thirsty for their creator. Sated refers to someone who is, I'm going to soften it a little bit from Rashi, material, materialism or a materialistic point of view. If you're materialistic, plenty of opportunities to satisfy the urge of materialism, right? If you're materialistic, plenty of opportunities to satisfy that and not thirsty vis-a-vis their creator, spirit, not, not thirsty spiritually. That's sated. And thirsty refers to Knesset Yisrael. That means the general assemblage of, of souls of Israel, which by and large, thirst and longs for the fear of its creator and to fulfill his commandments. The term Knesset Yisrael, when applied above, this is key, refers to the attribute of Malchut, and when applied below, refers to the souls of Israel. It, Malchut, is also called thirsty because it too thirsts for its creator. There's a lot of words here and a lot of ideas, and we just launched into some Kabbalistic concepts so let me explain. Sated is easy. It's referring to the, the element of non-spirituality. It's, it, sated refers to the element in the universe that's very satisfied with status quo and at least the way it plays out in this realm of existence, satisfied with materialism. So many opportunities to satisfy that and to be satisfied by that because there are many physical things around. Thirsty, on the other hand, refers to a state of yearning, a state of desiring something that's not at hand. In other words, it refers to a spiritual longing that is not easily fulfilled, certainly not being here on earth. Does that make sense? Sort of? Sated refers to, again, I'm, I'm, I'm like taking it a little bit away from the theoretical part of it and making it a little bit more concretized than where we are yet, where we are up to yet in this text, but just for the sake of clarity, sated will refer to a, a, a condition here on this earth where a person is living the life and just enjoying life and enjoying the material pleasures around them. That's sated. That's satisfying. And thirsty means 
A person who's in a state of spiritual yearning and longing. A person who doesn't feel satisfied and content by money, by things, by fame, by popularity, by influence, but rather somebody who yearns for something a little bit deeper than the surface. Sated refers to materialism, and thirsty refers to spirituality. In the Svirot, this is where we're headed. In the Svirot, and I'm going to share a chart with you in just a moment. There is one energy of the ten that is considered to be in a constant state of being thirsty. Thirsty is thirsty means yearning for something that it doesn't have yet. Thirsty means yearning for something higher than self. There's one energy that is thirsty for that which is beyond itself. And that energy, that sphira, that's thirsty, is malchut, which happens to be the lowest of the energies. I'm going to share with you a chart of the spherot energies. Let me pull this up. Give me a second. Hold on. Okay, here we go. Thanks for your patience. And I am going to put up the Sphero chart on the screen. Right now. Okay, do you see the chart with the blue and, and red circles? Yes? This is probably, yeah, you guys see it? Thumbs up? Yeah, okay, good. This is probably the most often shared document in Kabbalah and Coffee history, because I've shared it literally countless times. At least I can't count how many times I've shared it. So if you look at it, this is one depiction, classic depiction of the 10 Sphirot. 10 energies. These are, of course, spiritual energies that don't actually look like circles with lines. It doesn't actually look like this, but this is a way of conceptualizing these energies and understanding their, the way they exist, the, their own modality, as well as the way that they interact with other energies, the other spherot, and the connections that, that tie them together. Either way, there are right-side energies, there are left-side energies, which we've discussed at length in many previous classes on Kabbalah, and today is not a deep dive into the Svirot, but today we're going to talk about one of the energies, one of the Svirot in particular. By the way, Svirot means, um, one of the explanations is, Svirot means, uh, it comes from the Hebrew word, um, What's the Hebrew word? I don't know exactly the form of the Hebrew word, but it essentially means something that shines or something that's luminescent. So these are energies that are really like shining energies, divine shining energies. 
um, like the idea of uh, sapphire. Sfirot is also related to the word um, sapir, which means sapphire in Hebrew. So there's a lot like sapphire shining, a gem, something that's luminescent. So the sfirot are, are these idea of uh, these points of light in creation and in the soul as well, because the, the human soul also has these 10 energies within the soul as well, and they operate on a personal level as well, in addition to a cosmic level. But now let's talk about these energies on a cosmic level in creation. So from the top, we start top right, and then we go left, then center, right, left, center. So we have Chachma at the top, Bina and Dat. Three intellectual capacities, Chesed, Gvurat, Ferret, <coughs> Netzach, Hod Yisod, and Malchut. And you can see, based on this depiction, which is why it's helpful, that Malchut is standing almost on its own. You notice that? Malchut is kind of like hanging there at the bottom. It's almost like you have a body, and then that's kind of like, you know, dangling down somewhere in some sort of other space. Like there's, there's, the, there's, the, you know, there's the, the tight-knit association of the other energies, and then one that's kind of like sent out. This is actually very reflective of the way Kabbalah explains the role of Malchut in creation. And we could do this inside, and we are going to do this inside, but I feel like before we get inside the text, I must explain the, the basic dynamic outside in conversation to allow for this concept to make sense and allow for conversation, and then we could read it inside. The premise is that creating... Going from infinite creator, God, to finite creation requires a process of successively lessening and lessening and lessening the original light. Because if you have the original infinite light and you don't in any way limit it, you don't cut it, you don't diminish it, you don't hide it, you don't conceal it, then what you'll get is more infinite light. And if infinite light creates, it's going to create beings that are likewise in its image, i.e. infinite. So the process of creation to go from infinite light to finite creation, let's just give an example of finite creation, a single blade of grass. How do you go from infinite divine light to a blade of grass that requires a, a process, step-by-step -step process of lessening and lessening the light. Now, we can call that symptom, which we do in Kabbalah, which means contraction of the light, but the process also works amongst these 10 sephirah energies, where the higher it is in the structure, right, the higher the sphera is, the more, the closer it is to the infinite source, the lower it is, the more relatable it is to something that's more limited, that's more finite. I hope that makes sense. In other words, the journey from infinite creator to finite creation goes through this scaffolded process. It almost looks like scaffolding on the side of a building when they're doing work, right? When they're doing work on the side, construction work, right? So it's almost descending down through these various points of light to get lower and lower and lower until it gets to Malchut, and Malchut is the actual point, the lowest point of light of these 10 energies, which is so low, listen to this, that it can serve as the source 
for the next lower element or realm in existence. Does that make sense? Malchut, which is at the bottom of this totem pole, so to speak, serves as the source for the next world or realm beneath it. So one way of understanding it is that these ten energies exist in the world of Atzilot, the world of emanation, which is a very spiritual world. How do you get a new world, the world of creation, where suddenly there's more self-identification, even if it's not physical? But how do you get to a lower world with a lower, a more self-oriented consciousness? It's through this, the, through the, the light tumbling down through the various stages until it gets to Malchut, and Malchut births, if you will, the new world that is beneath it. Malchut, as the lowest, is the closest in relationship to that which is beneath it. To give you a human example, and this example is in our text, Malchut is associated with the power of Dibur, the power of speech. So what is the power of speech? The power of speech is the ability to take an idea that's in your head and to share it with somebody else who's outside of you, right? An idea that you've been thinking about that's inside your head, that your mind formulated, and you can take that idea that otherwise is just literally in your head that no one will ever know, and through your mouth and your power of speech, you can articulate it to an outsider, to an other. <coughs> That's what speech does. Why? Because speech is a lower faculty that is relatable to an outsider, right? Your mind and your thoughts are still too high and too lofty. They're stuck inside of you. But when you hit the mouth, so to speak, when you hit the power of speech, it's lower. You're taking an idea, bring it down into speech. And from speech, it can be birthed. In other words, it can be, if birth is not the creation of life, but the emergence of life from a concealed state into a revealed state. Do I need to elaborate on that? Or that makes sense what I just said, right? Birth is not conception is the creation of life. But birth is the movement of life from inside, from a state of concealment to a state of revelation. That's what speech is as well. Speech is, I had a thought, an idea that was hidden inside of my head, and now I'm birthing the idea into the world, or at least to, to you, by speaking it and articulating it to you. I am taking something that was hidden and making it revealed. I'm revealing that which was previously concealed. That is birth. That is speech. That is malchut. Now, you might say, well, malchut is translated here as leadership. Don't worry about the translation. You cannot translate the energies. You cannot translate accurately these energies with one English word. doesn't work. Malchut is the energy. It's the lowest sphere, the lowest point of light in any given world. It is always the lowest point of light. And therefore, because it is the lowest point of light in any given world, it's the point of light that's closest 
to the next stage, the next lower stage than itself. <clears throat> very similar. Very similar. Hey, Alex. Great to see you. Very similar to the idea of speech. Right? The ideas that you have inside are your ideas. And the way they exist in your head, they're very sophisticated and lofty and they're still stuck inside of you. Speech, the power of communication, gives you and I the ability to take an idea that's otherwise just, just for you and to birth it into the open, to bring it out into the world, right? To share it with others is to give it life, is to give it birth, is to open it up to others. And that's what malchut does. The lowest of the energies, malchut, is about birthing things, bringing things out into the open. It's, it's such a beautiful energy. The capacity for birth, which what is birth? Birth is taking something hidden and making it revealed. That's why malchut is typically understood as a feminine energy. Malchut is a feminine energy, just like the idea of birth on a physical sense, right? Biologically is a feminine quality. Malchut, which is birth of new worlds, new dimensions, new realms, is a feminine energy. The earth is also called, is also associated with Malchut. The earth, like physical land. Why? Because earth also gives birth to life. Where you plant a seed, and how do you plant a seed? You bury it under the ground. It's crazy, right? You take a seed, a perfectly nice looking seed, and you put it under the ground and you cover it with earth. It's crazy. It's sugar. You're taking a good seed and you're wasting it. But of course we know that the point is not to, you know, bury it and, 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 and be done with it forever. The point of planting a seed is for ultimately that hidden power of growth that you planted in the, in the earth to blossom above the surface, to produce a tree, a flower, a plant, a vegetable, whatever it, whatever it, gives, it gives birth to, whatever it, it, it reveals. So the, the big idea here is that in every dimension, this is really important, in every world, and there are multiple worlds, typically, uh, primarily four, that are discussed in Kabbalah, Atzilut, Berea, Yitzira, and Asiya, the world of emanation, creation, formation, and action. In each of these worlds, you have all ten energies. And the lowest dimension, Malchut, is always what gives birth to the next world because it is the lowest. The higher energies in the world within that realm couldn't relate to a lower world beneath it. But it's Malchut because it's lower so to speak, it's more relatable to the other, like the power of speech. Because it's considered to be lower than thought, that's why it can communicate with another person and bring out your ideas into the open. Which means there's an advantage and disadvantage of the lofty dimension, of the higher dimension. The advantage is it's lofty, it's higher. The disadvantage is it's too lofty, it's too high. It's like Imagine an artist. You know, many great artists in history 
weren't appreciated in their lifetimes. Do you know this? Many of the greatest artists in history, while they were alive, people didn't understand their art. Their art was not valuable. Their art was like, ugh, who likes that? And only after they died, it's like, whoa, mind-blowing. That's amazing. You know why? We, we, there's a word for this, or there's a phrase for this. They were ahead of their times. They had a vision, right? They had a vision of art, of truth, of beauty that the world yet hadn't yet caught up with. So society is thinking of beauty in these terms, and then you have a, a truly innovative artist whose mind is so creative that they're seeing a beauty and a truth in a completely different space, and they're, they're innovators. They're absolute innovators, and, and the world can't relate yet until ultimately, hopefully, it catches up. So there's an advantage to the lofty, the higher state, but there's also a disadvantage. The advantage is, it's ahead of the game. The disadvantage is, it's not as relatable. Whereas, something that's lower down, so to speak, right? something that's not as high, not as sophisticated, something that's a little bit lower, so the disadvantage is that it's lower, but the advantage is, the advantage is, the good thing about it is, that it's relatable. Malchut is the lowest of the energies, right? I'm going to share my screen with you again, just so, that you, just so we have the picture of, of this, um, just so that we have this picture in front of us. So Malchut is the lowest, therefore it is the most relatable, and therefore it becomes the source to the next world down. Think about it this way. Think about, oh, what's a good example? Think about a necklace. Think about a necklace <coughs> that you unclasp, right? You open it up. So instead of being like, um, you know, closed, you open it up and you hold it from the top. So now it's, it's just going straight down, right? You're holding the top and it goes straight down. And the necklace is one of those necklaces that has links, right? Links in a chain. Right? So it's one link and then another link and then another link, right? And you're holding it from the top. The lowest link, the lowest part of that chain is the part of that necklace that is the closest to what's beneath it. That's what Malchut is. And even more so, Malchut of one world, the lowest point of, of, of any given world becomes, listen to this, the keter, the crown of the world beneath it. So the way it works is, you're holding the necklace, it's chain, links of a chain, 10 links, let's say, 10 energies, hanging down. The lowest, chain, the lowest link in that chain becomes the top link in the next chain that descends down from it. So we have... Chachma, Bina, Dat, Chesed, Gevura, Teferet, Netzach, Yisod, Malchut. Malchut becomes Keter, the crown of the next world that then extends beneath it. Kind of like in the human experience where our thoughts, right, filter into our words and our words express our thoughts and ideas to another person. So our speech is at the end 
of our thoughts and imagination, right? It's just the, the, the carrier mechanism, but that becomes the original source of that person's information and knowledge. Are you with me on what I just said? Yeah? You're like the, the last part of the process for you, right, which is speaking it, is the first part of the process for the next person who's hearing it for the first time. So your end, your malchut speech, is the keter, is the source for that person's understanding and knowledge. So malchut has a duality. On the one hand, it's the lowest. On the other hand, because of that, it's the most relatable. And because of that, it can spawn and create a new reality. And vis-a-vis that new reality, well, now it's the, it's the top. It's the source. On a cosmic level, malchut is a euphemism. Or malchut is referred to with another word. A word that I think many of you are very familiar with. I'm going to say the word in Hebrew and then translate. Kabbalah says that malchut is synonymous with Shekhinah. Shekhinah means the divine presence. Shekhinah means, <coughs> I've seen it translated like this, the indwelling of, div- of the divine, the indwelling of God. What does it mean, the indwelling of God? It means a spiritual, the spiritual energy that is not abstract and transcendent, but rather the one that comes into our reality. The Shekhinah is the divine energy that is imminent as opposed to transcendent. It's the energy that fills the worlds as opposed to surrounding the worlds. It's the energy that enlivens creation from the inside out as opposed to controlling it from the outside in. The Shekhinah is the divine energy that is inside of creation. And that's why it's associated with Malchut. Because Malchut, as the lowest of the ten energies, is the energy that's most primed to go into the next lower dimension. And so I point that out from the beginning. I point that out from the beginning. Can you repeat that last statement one more time? Sure. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So there are different energies, different divine energies. There's divine energies that transcend creation, that are larger than life, that we can only aspire to think about and meditate on and, and their transcendence, like the infinite. And, and then there's the energy that goes inside of creation, like the energy, the life force that flows inside the blade of grass. The blade of grass is growing, right? And it's not just a physical phenomenon. We understand it to be a spiritual. There's a soul in the blade of grass, a spiritual life force in a bla- in one single blade of grass. Who is that? What is that? Is that God? Yes, but in more precise Kabbalistic terminology, it's the Shekhinah, it's the divine presence, it's the imminent light of God that, is, that, that flows within each and every being on its terms from within, as opposed to the infinite light of God or the larger energy of God that transcends and surrounds creation. So this would be the imminent light and this is associated with Malchut because Malchut is that lowest sphira, that lowest point of, of light and energy that 
when you see the depiction of the energies, right? So they're all kind of, the, the, the other nine are kind of grouped together in this kind of like diamond-shaped, um, you know, uh, um, it, it literally looks like, a, does it look like a diamond? If there's Keter on top, I guess. But whatever, it, it, it has a configuration to it. And then there's Malchut is like down. And that signifies the Shechina, which leaves the spiritual source and comes into our world. And the truth is, it goes, it, that's true for all the worlds. It leaves whatever is the world above and it goes, descends into the, the next world. And then the Malchut of that next world goes down and descends into the world beneath it until ultimately, without, without um, getting too much in detail, until the Malchut that's above this world, the Malchut of Yitzira, goes into our world, and that's the soul that's inside every creation. So the tree, the blade of grass, the ocean, the sun, the sun, the sun everything that's, that exists, that's in, that has life, has a spiritual energy to it, that imminent spiritual energy that's flowing through it is the Shechina, is the Malchut. It's the same thing. Shechina, Malchut, whatever you call it. But it's the energy. Here's the, here's the big idea. It's the energy, the divine energy, that almost has, not exactly, but almost detached from the original space. Not exactly detached, but has left the original safe space, if you will, of spirituality, and has gone down into the nether regions of existence in our case, into our lowly world. And this is going to be a major idea. Because where we're headed with this, and I don't mind, you know, going, jumping a little bit to kind of like make sure that this makes sense and, and, and has kind of, uh, you know, we're tying some loose ends up. This is going to be the spiritual definition of thirsty. What is thirsty? Malchut is thirsty. Because Malchut's job is to go and give life and vitality and energy and spiritual fuel to all this stuff here on earth. And meanwhile, where does it want to be? Back home in its space where it originally was part of. Malchut is like, I don't know if it's a spy sent in a covert mission or just, I don't know. Malchut is... Malchut is tasked, hey, bro, you're the lowest, you're down there, go into that world beneath you and give it life and give it vitality and give it energy. That's what Malchut does. Malchut is the energy that goes into, in, into enemy territory, if you will. And I, and, I, and I actually am not using that with too much hyperbole because that's literally what this world is vis-a-vis spirituality, as we'll develop in, the, in our text. This world with all of its spiritual darkness relative to the spiritual realms above it, is considered to be enemy, literally enemy territory. And who goes in behind enemy lines to give life to this world in every being, in every creature that exists? It's the energy, it's the sphira of Malchut. Malchut goes in to give everything on the ground here life. And you can imagine how much Malchut is like, I'd much rather be... Back home. I mean, God is sending this, my, my energy down into this world. That's, that's why I am, but I would rather be up there. We're going to get into a lot of related ideas. 
The ideas of galut hashchina, exiling the shchina. Right when a person commits an, an act of indiscretion, they're taking their life that comes from malchut and misappropriating it. Are you with me on that? Imagine malchut, the shchina, right, has come down into this world, into your body, into this moment in time, and what are, what are, and what are we doing with it? We're doing that with it. That's taking malchut and putting it into a very compromising position. So in addition to malchut in general being in a lowly place, human action, our negative choices specifically, can bring it to an even lower state and more exiled space where we're taking malchut, the shechina, and actually capturing it in a negative way. Does that make sense? It's like we're putting, it's like we're kidnapping the energy and taking it where it doesn't want to be by committing a negative act. Anyway, that's why Malchut is thirsty, right? Malchut is thirsty, which is what our, the last paragraph that we read inside before we got into the chart, right? Malchut is thirsty because of where it goes and what it is, right? Again, I'm going to share my screen with you one more time to get this picture because I think it's important that we get this picture, right? Malchut is all the way down. It's a bit vulnerable, right? Everything else is kind of boxed and grouped together. Everything else represents that world as it is spiritually. And then you have Malchut, which is the energy of that world, whatever world that is, that then descends into the nether world beneath it, into the lower world beneath it. And vis-a-vis -vis our experience, Malchut is the divine energy, the Shechina that comes into our world and gives it life in an imminent way from the inside out, which is great for us, but it's, in the language of Kabbalah, it's painful for Malchut. It's painful for the Shechina because it has to come down to this world. It has to depart its spiritual comfort and come down. By the way, if this sounds familiar, if this journey sounds familiar, guess what? It's the same journey as the soul has. Right? Think about it. It's the same journey of the soul. And he'll speak about that as well in our text and in a few pages. It's the same journey. The soul is taken away, ripped away, if you will, from her place on high and sent down into a body. Great. Is that fun and games? Not for the soul. Is there a purpose? Yeah. But is the soul thirsty to go back? Yes. That's why the soul is likened to a flame that flickers, always trying to go back up. Themes that we've talked about many, many times. But we have, in our text today, new areas of application of these classic Kabbalistic ideas that on some level we've talked about before. So what we have here is simply a formula of divine energy that has two spaces. Its own space and hostile territory, a foreign space, a new space. The lowest energy of any given space, that lowest malchut energy is what spawns and gives life and permeates the next world down. Well, that's not always fun and games for malchut. And thus, malchut, which is also called Knesset Yisrael, the congregation of Israel, Malchut is considered to be in a state of perpetual 
thirst, yearning, desire, lack of satisfaction. It wants to go back home. Instead of being forward-facing or downward-facing or downward-trending, all it wants is to be back at home with its family energies, with its world. That's what it wants. Now, that's not what it's built for. It's built for sustaining the next world. That's what it's built for. But what it wants is to go back. Let's jump back in to our text and read this inside. It's very important. <coughs> this last line. Malchut is also called thirsty because it too thirsts for its creator. That's, ex that's what I was trying to explain. Malchut is called thirsty because it thirsts for its creator. That's what we're talking about here. It thirsts for its source because right now Malchut is not with its source. It's now with a foreign body. It's with a foreign entity. Let's explain. Malchut. Hopefully, as I read this inside, it's going to trigger the ideas that I've explained over the last 30 minutes. If I did a good job, this will sound familiar. If I didn't do a good job, this won't make sense. So hopefully I did a good job. The idea of this is as follows. Malchut is the source that creates and maintains the worlds. In other words, as the lowest of the 10 energies, it's the one that descends into creative modality. It's not the, this is who I am, but it's, this is who I spawn. Malchut, as the lowest, is forward-facing. As is written in Psalm 145, which is the Ashrei prayer, it says, Malchutcha, Malchut kol olamim. Malchutcha, your kingdom, your Malchut, it shouldn't, shouldn't be kingdom here because it's all about Malchut. Your Malchut is the Malchut of all worlds. In other words, we say to God, your Malchut is the Malchut of this. And Malchut is the energy that comes into the worlds, i.e. the root of the existence, sorry, the root of the existence of all worlds is from Malchut. So you're, so you're what, one second. Well, I thought God created the world. Yeah, before you get to Kabbalah, God and world, and it's very simple. But when you get to Kabbalah, you get a little bit more specificity. It's not just God in the world, right? Who's God? What are you talking about? There's energies and sfirot and dimensions. And the point of all of this is that it's the lowest of the spiritual forces, i.e. Malchut, that is the root and source of that which spawns from that, the lower worlds. So the root and existence of all worlds is from this Malchut. Another verse that expresses this. It also says, You, Atah, give life to them all. The word Atah in Hebrew denotes all the letters, all the Hebrew letters from Aleph to Taf. You know what? It's going to work better if I show you the Hebrew. So this last line in the Hebrew, right? Ve'ata, ata, aleph, taf. That's like A to Z. Aleph, taf. Viz, and, ve'ata, and, ata, and you, 
give life to everybody. But you, who's the you? Aleph through Tav. The letters are what give life to creation. Letters are the articulations of speech of the state of Malchut. Hopefully I explained that before. Malchut is like the speech that communicates your hidden thoughts to another. It gives birth to the idea. It doesn't create the idea, but it opens it up to be a revealed state from its concealed state inside your own head. So you have ideas in your head. That's like, you know, a fetus. Uh, right? It's hidden. And then birth is when the hidden becomes revealed for the world to see. So an idea that's just in your head that you then express through speech, boom, that's revelation. That's malchut. Malchut gives birth to new worlds from the energies that were hidden inside. So malchut is like the earth, is like the feminine energy that gives rise, that gives birth, that sustains, that nurtures new worlds that are born from the previous energies. But it's the malchut, the lowest point, if you will, that touch, that touch point that then opens it up for its existence. So again, letters are the articulations of speech of the state of malchut from whom the vitality of all creation issues. Elsewhere, we are told, do not read it, you give life, you give life, but rather, even more so, you bring into existence mehavah. Not only does Malchut give life, it's not only the battery pack of the world, but Malchut actually brings it into existence from nothingness. It is known that what we call the source that creates and maintains worlds is merely a radiance, a light, utterly incomparable to God's essential being. And this is a major idea. Malchut, because it's the lowest, is termed a ray of light. It's the radiance. It's not the infinite essence. It's energy number 10 out of 10. It's the lowest, most faint and dim glimmer of the light that is low enough to be able to interface and spawn the next realm down. The higher realms the higher spherot energies, because they're more lofty, because the light there is a little bit, uh, is, is much brighter, the spiritual light there is brighter, it cannot create the next world down. It, it, you need the lowest point, right? You have to lessen, 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 lessen until you're able to spawn that next world. So you need a, a, the, the, the malchut energy, which is 10 out of 10, which is the lowest which is merely a, a radiance of the divine light. Radiance means not the, not the big, full, I don't know if it works in English, but in, in, in Kabbalah, whenever you, you catch that word radiance, you know it's a trigger word. It's like, ra oh, oh, radiance, not the essence. Radiance, just a ray of light, but not the big light. So there's like the big infinite light, and then there's the little, the little ray. It's merely radiance, utterly incomparable to God's essential being. That's what Malchut is. From the essence of the infinite light, right, there could not be the creation of the worlds and finite creatures. Hopefully, again, I said this before, right? If, if, if you're trying to create from the, from the infinite light itself, then you're not going to get worlds that are finite. You're just not going to get worlds and finite creatures. It's just not going to happen. You can't go from infinite to finite just like that. It, it's impossible. You have to lessen lessen, lessen, diminish, diminish, diminish the light 
and make it smaller and smaller and faint and dimmer and dimmer until you can get to spawn the next level. For infinite and finite have no common ground, as is explained at length elsewhere. So you cannot go from infinite to finite because there's no, there's no comparison from infinite to finite. It's, not, it's like it's completely different realities. So you have to go down to the lowest of the sphere of energies, Malchut, which is the most finite, the most finite of still the infinite light. It's not finite yet. It's right, because that's what it spawns. But it's the most accessible to or most relatable to finite of all the other ones, of all the other nine. And that's what can spawn. Only from radiance did the worlds come into being. Only from this radiance of Malchut, this diminished light, this lessened light can and did the worlds come into being. So again, very important to understand what's happening here. We started off this section by saying Malchut is thirsty. Why is Malchut thirsty? Because what we're saying now is essentially it's the lowest. And because it's the lowest, it's sent to do all the dirty work of creation. It's, I don't mean really dirty work, it's, it's, it's amazing work, but it's, it's sent down. All right, create and enliven and battery pack and, 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 and sustain all of existence and creation in the lower realms because it's diminished light and that's what its job is. Now, before we bring it back to why it's thirsty, he elaborates a little bit more about Malchut. Therefore, he says, Malchut, this same energy, this lowest of the 10 energies, is, is commonly called name. So Malchut is associated with speech, with birth, with creation, with diminished light, but it's also associated with name. Name. Like the name of a person. As in the verse that says, where is this verse from? Oop, we're upside down over there. Uh, oh, oh yeah, from liturgy. It says, his name in Adonalam, similar to this, it says, his name was proclaimed king over them. There's different ways to explain this. Different ways to explain this. But, but one way to explain this is that a king rules by reputation, not by direct order. Right? Why are people in a kingdom fall in line with the king? Because of, ooh, the king said it, I, the, the, the name and reputation of the king. The king doesn't have to show up to every town and village and say, I demand compliance. The king's name does that sufficiently, right? So the king, the king's name is proclaimed over them. His name was proclaimed king, oh, oh, king over them. A king rules by name. So king, Malchut, and name are connected. Now, th th this brings a, this evokes also the fact that Malchut is lower, Right? because it's called name. A name is no more than an extension and not the essence, right? The name of a person is not your essence. Your name is not your essence. It's, it's an extension of your essence. Just as a person's name is not the person's essence. Similarly, the vitality that gives life to the existence of the world is merely a name and radiance. And this is where we're gonna stop today oh, at 11.01 a.m., almost perfect timing. This is where we'll stop today. So what is Malchut? Malchut is the lowest of the energies. It's the most diminished of the, fr from amongst all the 10 energies of the spherot of whatever world we're talking about. It's the lowest. The light is the most diminished. It's the most relatable to the next world, the next limited, more finite world beneath it. 
It's the interface. It's the bridge between infinite and finite. It's speech, which gives birth, which takes something inside you and gives it to someone else, to a foreign entity, so to speak. It's also called name because a name is connected with you, but not your essence. And a name is also forward-facing. A name exists for the other to be able to relate to you, right? You have a name because there are other people. If there wouldn't be any other people in the world, you wouldn't need a name. On a, on a desert island, you don't need a name because no one's calling you, right? You only need a name for the other. So to Malchut is for the other. So this represents, this reflects also, it's, I'm not going to say it's otherness, but it's almost otherness and it's susceptibility to otherness and it's <coughs> diminishment, it's diminish. it's diminished, I don't, know, I don't know what the right form of this word is. It reflects, Malchut is the energy that is but a reflection of the original light. It's not the original, it's not the full light itself. It's the reflection of the light. It's the light as it's diminished. It's about the other. It's about creation. It's about enlivening that. It's the energy that's set off from the rest. It, downward, set off. For the, next, for the next thing. So it's called speech. It's called name. Just like your name is not you. It's an extension of you that others can relate to. Malchot is an extension of the original that others can relate to because it's their, that's, that's their interface. So, the, so simply stated, the lower world looking up relates to Malchot, not to the energies above it because Malchot is what enlivens it. The lowest of the previous world is what enlivens the next world down. All of this is, number one, to give us an understanding of Malchut, but really all of this, and I, I almost hate making it about, okay, well, so what's the point? Because it almost takes away from the journey because the journey is as rich as the destination, if not richer. But the destination that we are going with this is the idea and the notion that Malchut is in a perpetual state. As Malchut descends to enliven the next world down, Malchut is in a perpetual state of thirst and yearning, basically saying, why can't I be up there with everyone else? Why am I down here? Malchut is in a state of yearning perpetually to go back home <coughs> because it is that which gets shipped off, if you will, to enliven the next world down. Does that make sense? So what's the message for us? We have to have a practical, we're, in, we're just, we're really at the beginning of the articulation of this concept. And, 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 and sorry, let me just present the bigger picture, one, one more bigger picture, and then maybe a lesson, and then we're going to close it out. So again, the bigger, bigger picture is understanding how evil prospers. And you can already see how that, how that might happen, right? Because even within evil, there's still malchut. right? There's still this energy, even if it's being misappropriated, even if it's being captured and, and kidnapped, <coughs> the end of the day is Malchut does contain divine energy and it is its whole job is to descend down to the next realm, including the Malchut of us descending into us, and therefore it still gives life even when it's in a, in a uh, undesirable position. So again, without getting too deep into it, that's the other big picture that we're trying to develop is how does evil prosper? How is there success? 
How is success born when people break the rules or when bad things are happening? How is that even possible cosmically, spiritually? So we're going to develop that idea. Moreover, we're going to develop the idea <coughs> that one can even benefit spiritually from that. Not that that's a good thing, but that there could be even an abundance of light, which is something that's going to be much further down the line in this conversation. What's the message for today? Here's one, per, one practical message, and I alluded to it before. Our souls are in the same boat as Malchut. Our souls are essentially the same thing. Right? Ripped away, so to speak. Let me dr- dr- dramatize this for a moment. Ripped away from Manhai, Ripped away from the spiritual realms. Ripped away from heaven. And sent down into our bodies. And every moment of every day that we're alive, we have that our bodies are alive. We have a choice. Whether we're going to make the soul comfortable, a little bit more comfortable, or a little bit less comfortable in his journey. In other words, are we going to do something that makes the soul really cry out, why am I here? Or are we going to allow the soul, give the soul opportunities to breathe, to express her spiritual yearnings, to feel a little bit more at home, even as she is in a place that, would be, that is a foreign environment. We allow the soul to breathe. We give the soul oxygen. We give the soul a taste of home every time we study Torah, every time we study Kabbalah, every time we pray, every time we do a mitzvah. In other places in Kabbalah, it says this is an act of Rachmanus. You know what Rachmanus means? It's an act of compassion and pity on the soul. In other words, if, if, if a person is wondering, should I do this? Like, what should I do? Should I do a mitzvah? Should I go to shul? Should I, do, should I study Torah? Or should I just, you know, you know uh, <coughs> I don't know. Whatever it is, you know, waste time. A person, part of that calculus, part of that calculation could, should be, perhaps, let me do my soul a favor <laughs> and give my soul, throw my soul a bone, so to speak. Let me do something for my soul that will give her a little bit of... Uh, an uplifted experience. So the soul is who we are also. It's not a separate entity. So let's benefit ourselves by being conscious, consciously choosing to give our soul outlets of expression. And in, in an in a so, all-too-often dark world, let's give our soul something to celebrate, a connection on high, a point of, uh, a point of what's the word I'm looking for? An oasis in a world of chaos. And, and a connection. Thank you for joining me today for Kabbalah and Coffee. We are going to continue this theme over the next several weeks. It's going to get incredibly beautiful. I mean, as, 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 like, as, as profound as it was today, it's going to keep on getting you know, deeper and deeper and more poignant. And, and we're really going to develop this powerful idea about success and, and laws and boundaries and spirituality and spiritual energy. It's going to be fantastic. So I encourage you to keep on joining us Sunday mornings. 9.30 a.m. And also, certainly, you can share the information with your friends. All you need is an internet connection at this point, and you can connect. All right, a few announcements. Number one, tonight, we have our book club. and The book is entitled, The Dove Keepers. So, if you've read the book, or if you've never read the book, but want to be part of a book conversation, you don't have to speak. You can just be part of it and find out about the book. Lots of spoiler spoilers. So you can join us tonight, 8 p.m. If you need the Zoom, you can contact me, or maybe it's even on our website. I don't know, intownjewishacademy.org, or you can email me, rabbiariachabanatown.org, and I will give you the, the information. 
Next announcement. Tomorrow night is Rosh Chodesh Society, um, uh, the Rosh Chodesh Society course for women. We have that tomorrow night, 8 p.m. The class is all about, so the course is all about joy, a code to joy. It's all about finding happiness and joy in our lives. And the focus tomorrow night of the class will be on enriching our relationships, understanding that relationships play a very pivotal role in our sense of, in our sense of well-being. Thank you, Mariana. In our sense of well-being and happiness. So it's how can we deepen our relationships in order to help, well, first of all, for the relationship, but also to augment our own sense of happiness, contentment, and joy. That's tomorrow night at 8 p.m. So tonight is book club. Tomorrow night is RCS, or Scottish Society. At the end of this week, Friday night, for those of you that are local, I know not everybody is local, but for those of you that are local, I, uh, I, I invite you to join me and my family for Shabbat Under the Stars, outdoor Shabbat dinner experience, socially distanced, um, did play, plated dinner, so there's no buffet action and you know elbow jostling. Um, join us Friday night. 7.30 is dinner, preceded by prayer service at 7 o'clock, candlelighting and prayers at 7. So 7 o'clock, candlelighting and prayers, 7.30 dinner. Outside, under the stars. Well, I mean, it won't be dark yet, but it'll be on its way. Twilight, sunset, it's gorgeous. Everything will be set beautifully. Th gourmet three-course dinner, catered by EB Catering Concepts. Ellie Brofman, who is a wonderful caterer. So join me Friday night. Next. Final announcement. Our new JLI course is starting next Tuesday and Thursday. It's called This Can Happen, and it's all about a credible case for feeling good about the future. It's about the Jewish perspective on Mashiach. Will the real Messiah please stand up? What is Mashiach? What is the Messiah? There's lots of other perspectives on Messiah. and We've talked about Mashiach in other classes, but here's a course, six weeks, exactly the details of Mashiach, what it is, and how we can even hope for such a thing when the world seems to be as imperfect as it is today. We'll address that as well in our classes. And as, some, as, as, as many of you perhaps know, or some of you know, I, um, I'm one of the course authors, so you can study a lesson that I actually wrote from beginning to end in this course. I'm not going to tell you which lesson it is. You're going to have to guess that's going to be part of the experience. You'll have to guess which lesson you think it is. And then I'll let you know if you got it right. So that's coming up next week. We have a Zoom option, Tuesday nights, an in-person option, Thursdays. So pick, pick your favorite and join us for that. There's also a new event that just went out in an email today. It's called From Auschwitz to the IDF. And it's about a young man who's an Israeli Defense Forces veteran, celebrated veteran of the IDF, who was motivated and inspired to leave the comfort of his home in Cincinnati, Ohio, where he's the son of a Chabad rabbi, to go to Israel and to defend his homeland because of his grandfather's story. His grandfather is the, one of the youngest survivors of, of Auschwitz. And his name is Rabbi Label. Not, sorry, the young man's name is Label Mengel. His grandfather's name is Nissen Mengel. And if you're wondering if that sounds familiar, he's the translator of the Chabad Siddur. Rabbi Nissen Mengel. Holocaust survivor who the Rebbe basically encouraged, I don't want to give away this, too much of the story, 
to study English, and he became a writer and translator. His grandson was so inspired by his grandfather's story of survival that he went to defend his homeland. We will be having a conversation with him, a fantastic story, incredible story, with this grandfather's story and his own experience with terror operations in Israel or combating terror operations. Um, Join us. It's coming up in three or four weeks. The information just went out. It's on the website, intownjewishacademy.org slash IDF. You can find it. Join us. It's going to be an amazing talk. All right. There's also more to come. That's really exciting, but I haven't yet released it. So I'm waiting on design for it because we got to get the, the got to do it right. So stay tuned for more really fun programming in addition to the meaningful and enriching stuff. All right. <coughs> Excuse me. Thank you all for joining. I hope everyone's doing well and everyone's healthy and everyone is uh, hopefully in a positive state. Um, thank you for being here. Let's, let's, uh, let me personally thank everybody. Stan and Joy and Donna and Tony and Yaakov and Luann and David and Alex and Joy and Sandrine and Richard. Welcome to Richard. First Kabbalah and coffee class, I believe. Welcome, welcome, Richard. Toba and Fran and Mariana and Alex. Thank you, guys. It's great to see you all. <coughs> Have a wonderful day. Shavua Tov. Looking forward to seeing you soon. Bye, everybody. Thank you, Shabbat Pleasure. Thank you.